North Shore Church audio podcast. To find out more information about North Shore Church, please visit us at mynsag.com. We hope you enjoy today's message. But it's good to see you here this morning. Thank you for being with us. Man, I am glad to be here today. I hope you are too. Um, to all of our guests, again, thank you for being here with us today. We are so, so glad to have you here just celebrating Jesus with us this morning. And you may not have a relationship with Jesus. You may have some questions. Uh, and we'd encourage you to ask you know, the person you came with, uh, one of the staff members. But, uh, but just know that we are so, so glad to have you here. I hope you all are doing good. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to get there in just a minute, 2 Kings chapter 4. Uh, we're starting a new series today called More, More. We're believing and we're praying and we're anticipating that uh, 2018 will be a year of more for us. And uh, just anticipating that God has more for us and God wants to do more in and through us. And uh, so we're super, super excited about this. Um, I came across a story here uh, just recently. There's a successful personal injury lawyer in Texas that has been in the news a lot lately. And um, he isn't, he's not in the news because of any sort of scandal that he's involved in, which you would think probably would uh, be newsworthy, at least uh, here in our day and age. Or he's not in the news because of any sort of uh, client he's working with or any case he's working on. The headlines have been all about the lavish parties that he's been throwing for his children. He's a very successful lawyer, and he's throwing these extravagant parties. It was reported that Thomas Henry threw a birthday party for his 18-year-old son that cost them $4 million for the party. $4 million. There were ice sculptures, and there were aerial dancers hanging from the ceilings and Flying or flying or floating over the crowd, however you want to call it. There was all sorts of stuff going on. There was alcohol and cigars for those of them who were of age, wink, wink, you know what I mean? Like, it just lavish, all of this stuff. There were celebrities and musicians performed, and, and I would tell you who they were, but as I was reading the musicians that were performing, I realized that I can't at all pronounce their name, and I don't want to damage my street cred with the kids here today, so... Just know that there were celebrities and musicians that performed at this birthday party. The birthday boy, he rolled up to his party in his brand new Ferrari, which cost a modest $250,000. A good day for that 18-year-old boy. You know what I'm talking about. Um, That actually, this party was pretty uh, modest in comparison to the $6 million quinceanera that this man threw for his 15-year-old daughter. At that quinceanera uh, that party featured Pitbull and Nick Jonas, as well as a num- number of other celebrity performers, and just uh, pulled out all of the stops and, and spent all of the money. And, and so, so this family has, has been in the media a little bit lately, and the attention that they're getting, sort of uh, uh, Kardashian-esque and, and extravagant and opulent in their um, parties and lavishing these, these gifts on their kids. And and there's been a little bit of social media criticism and kickback to this man and his wife for all the excess. And, and people are saying, you know, this is what's wrong with America today. Disgusting. Too much. It's too, it's too much. This is ridiculous. And, and all of this stuff. And, and look, I'm with them. That's ridiculous, right? Like, I had a party once when I was eight years old. And, and it was, you know, it just, it came in just under four million, right? You know what I mean? Just under, just under. But so you look at this and you think, this is kind of crazy, it's too much. But I've noticed something else as well. 
And it's strange, but often when we hear stories like this, when we hear of people going to this length, this extravagant, people overdoing it, living in this amount of excess, we automatically assume the moral high ground. And so, so looking at that, because we don't have the opportunity to do that, because we can't experience that, we, we automatically jump on the moral high ground. And, and if we stay there too long, we get caught in this strange tension. We do, because we as, as people today, most of us, we're okay with excess. We, we are, we're okay with excess, but too much excess makes us uncomfortable. And so we live in this strange little um, paradigm where um, this amount of excess is okay, but this amount is not okay. And, and so we try to put our arbitrary standards on what amount of excess is okay for you and what amount is, of excess is okay for me. Look, uh, we know we're okay with excess because many of you, you had your Christmas this year and you put your tree up and um, remember years and years and years ago when all the presents would fit under the tree? Come on somebody, you know what I'm talking about. Let me see a hand so I know I'm not just up here by myself. Did all of your presents fit under your tree this year? No. Most of you know if you have kids, and especially if you have seven kids or, or five kids or seven of us. We don't have seven kids. Not making an announcement or anything like that. We have five kids. There's seven of us. Cousins and grandparents and everything else coming over. I mean, I mean, our little tree couldn't contain all of the presents in this kind of floating out into the other part of the room and stuff like that. So we are okay with excess. We just, we put a limit on the amount of excess that we're comfortable with before we start getting all self-righteous and thinking, oh, that's too much. The problem is that this tension about excess and how much excess is okay seeps into our spiritual life as well. And what we begin to do is we place an arbitrary cap on what God is able to do in us, what he's able to do through us, and what he's able to do for us before we start feeling like it's looking a little bit ridiculous, like it's too much. And so we place this cap on what God is able to do in us. And as I'm thinking about this and I'm praying over this and I'm preparing and listening to what God has for us and me and this church in 2018, I don't want to put a cap on the blessings and the grace and the power and the anointing that God has for me and wants to lavish on this church. I don't want to put a cap on that. And, and as we're getting ready to step into this message, I don't want you to think that I'm preaching a prosperity gospel. I don't want you to think that I'm preaching a message that says God wants to make every single one of you rich and God wants me to be rich and you to be rich and you to be rich and, and I'm not saying that God wants everyone to drive a Ferrari. I don't believe that for a second. The truth is that if some of you had a Ferrari, you would abandon God faster than that car could go from zero to 60 and you know it. But I do believe that God has more for you. I believe that God has more for you than what you are experiencing right now. I believe that God has more for me, and I don't want to limit God. I want more. I want the more that God has for me. I want more in my life personally. I want more in my family. I want more in my marriage. I want more of God for this church. I want more in my prayers. I want more of the Holy Spirit inside of me. I want more anointing in my preaching. I want more grace in my influence. I want more blessings on my finances. I do. I want it. I want, I want more of God. I want so much of God just, just seeping in all of my life that, that it just begins to spill out and pour over. I want more. 
I, I, want, I want so much of God in me. I, I want to walk in so much grace and so much favor and so much anointing in, of, of God that people look at me and tweet about me and, and Facebook about me in this church thinking, now isn't that just a little bit ridiculous? Come on. That's too much. I want more. I want more of God. And we have long believed, and as we think about God and make up our, our mindset and our opinions of God and, and who we think he is, we've long believed that God is kind of like this stingy old miser, right? We sort of see God as this billionaire who's a bad tipper. Like he has all of this stuff and, and you know, he's real stingy and handing it out. He has plenty to give, but he blesses begrudgingly. But the truth is that God desires to pour out his love on us and in us excessively and freely. God has blessings in store that he is anxiously awaiting to pour out onto his people, and they are extravagant blessings. Think of 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says this, See what great love the Father has lavished on us. Everybody say lavished. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Now think about the extent of the gift that is, is being considered here. If God didn't withhold his son, Jesus, from us, and, and listen, the gift of Jesus is way more excessive than a $6 million birthday party. We don't think so because we kind of get bored with Jesus, because we get comfortable and familiar with Jesus. We kind of act like the spoiled little brat who, eh, Jesus, I don't want Jesus anymore. Like the kid who gets the Ferrari and he's like, oh, it's blue, I want it red, you know, and acts like a jerk. But, but the, the gift of Jesus to us, to the world, to you and me personally, is way more excessive than a $6 million birthday party. It's way more excessive than a $250,000 car. And I think that if God didn't withhold Jesus from us, why do we kind of find ourselves in this place where we're assuming that he's going to withhold all these other lesser blessings from us? The extravagance of Jesus makes a Ferrari look like a Ford Festiva. But God lavished his love on us by giving us his son Jesus so that we could be called children of God. Man, he's so good. And I know it's early in the year and you're not really ready to start amening and saying that's good preaching, Pastor Chris. Man, you're bringing it on day one of 2018. But I am, and this is good preaching, right? I will manipulate you to make me feel better. Thank you for allowing me to do that. But it is. I would say this. God fills you to the capacity that you are able to contain. As we prepare to, to step into the text of this message, God fills you to the capacity that you are able to contain. The problem has never been and will never be God's unwillingness to give. The problem has always been our unreadiness to receive. And no, I didn't steal this from Joel Osteen, but I want you to consider the message that we are going to, to speak here in 2 Kings chapter 4. So let's look at this. 2 Kings, chap 2 Kings chapter 4, verse 1. 
It says this, one day the widow of a member of the group of prophets came to Elisha and cried out. This is what she said. She said, my husband who served you is dead, and you know how he feared the Lord. But now a creditor has come and threatened to take my two sons as slaves. So let me offer a little context so that we have a better understanding of what's happening in this particular passage of Scripture. Elisha, at this time in the Old Testament, was one of the greatest prophets that have ever walked the face of the earth. He operates in a, in a sense of spiritual power and anointing that nobody else has ever operated in. Um, the, his mentor and his spiritual father, his teacher, Elijah, <clears throat> was um, so anointed by God that God took him to heaven without him dying. And scripture tells us that Elisha operates in a double portion of anointing than even his mentor. So Elisha is the real deal. He speaks the word of God. He is God's representative here on earth at this time. And so what Elisha is doing right now is, is he's going around, he's ministering, and, and he's um, performing miracles, and he's just representing God very well. And, and he has this group, this school of prophets that he oversees. And you can kind of think about it as like a little bit of a training ground, maybe a Bible college sort of thing, where he's uh, teaching and training these men of God how to study scripture and how to, to operate in the power and the anointing of God, um, those sort of things. And this man who died was a part of that school. And so this woman comes to Elisha and says, look, my husband is dead. He was in your school. He was doing ministry. And, and probably most likely this man who died was bivocational. Like we, we have some pastors who are in churches that are a little bit smaller and maybe they can't afford to pay a pastor full time. And so that, that pastor comes in and serves the church as their pastor and they get a little bit of, of uh, financial compensation, but then they have to go out and, and find another job in the community to, to work as well. And so they have two jobs. They're a bivocational pastor. And, and it's probably very likely that this man who died was, was sort of uh, in a bivocational um, employment in this. And he worked as a pastor, but he also had a job to make ends meet for his family, and their income was mediocre at best. And for whatever reason, uh, when this man died, he had debt that couldn't be paid after his death. And so he didn't have any will or anything set up in a way to um, set the family up financially after he died. So he died, and now his wife and his two boys are in a really, really bad situation. One way to settle debts in, in this society at that time, if they couldn't be paid financially, was that of a bond servant. So this widow, this woman, she had absolutely nothing of any value except her two capable boys. And so what would happen is if, if you owed money to a creditor and you didn't have anything that, that you could sell or liquidate to pay off that debt... Um, you could enter yourself into a bond servant agreement, and if you're not entering freely, they could come in and they could require you to become a bond servant, which essentially is you have to become, or in this case, these two boys were about to be taken in to become slaves for the creditor for the next seven years. And so these two boys would be slaves for the next seven years to the creditor and to work off the debt of her deceased husband that he left. So there's two things that we know about this dead prophet as, as we add, kind of think through this and give commentary. Number one, he loved the Lord. He served the Lord faithfully. And number two, he had financial debt. We don't know why he was in debt. May have been a medical issue that, that was going on in the family or him that, that, that he was behind in payments. Perhaps it was uh, a result of the wicked queen Jezebel and, and her implementing some economic persecution on the men and women of God 
in that day and, and making it very difficult for them to succeed financially. Um, and she, we know that Queen Jezebel hated the prophets and wanted them all dead. And so it's possible that it was government regulations that was uh, in place that were forcing this man to be in debt. We, we don't know. We just don't know. Maybe he was making poor financial decisions. That's possible too. We, we just don't know why he was in debt. And and in this, when we read passages like this, we, we, again, find ourselves in another spot of tension where we try to determine if, if these people that we read about in Scripture, and in this case, this man, if he was more godly because he was poor or if he was less godly because he was poor. And we do this in Scripture, but we also do this every day. When we drive down the street and we see somebody kind of standing on the corner asking for money, they need help, we look at them and, and oftentimes we have sort of this internal spiritual dialogue where, where we try to determine are they more godly because they're in this situation or are they less godly because they're in this situation. And if we're honest, most of us would look at people like that and say, well, probably they're less godly because they've made bad decisions and, and you know, I would never find myself in that situation. And, you know, if they would just, you know, love Jesus and pursue Jesus more, he would bless them and he would get them out of there. And so, and so we sort of put arbitrary godliness standards on people based on their financial situation. And I think that we have to stop using finances as a measurement for people's godliness. Amen? It's just we, we have to stop that. Because the truth is, sometimes obedience to God will lead to financial increase. That's true. Yes? Sometimes obedience to God will lead to financial increase. We know that's true. We have... Examples in scripture. Think of Joseph. Joseph and the coat of many colors with his brothers. His brothers were mad at him and they sold him into slavery. Things were really bad for Joseph. But he followed God obediently. He did everything that God asked him to do. He never turned his back on God. And through a process of events, God raised him up to be the second most powerful man in all of Egypt. Joseph, because of his obedience, was raised to a position of wealth, power, and authority that he never would have been able to attain on his own. So because he was obedient to God, he entered into massive wealth because of his obedience. We see others in Scripture. We see Jacob, um, who, who God increased his flock and his finances because of his faithfulness to God. We see King Solomon, who, who God spoke to and said, Solomon, ask me whatever you want to ask me, and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, I want wisdom in leading your people. And God says, because you are following me, because you were faithful to ask for wisdom, I'm giving you wealth. And Scripture says he was the most wealthy man on earth. Because he was walking in obedience to God, God led him to a place of tremendous wealth. Sometimes obedience to God will lead to financial increase. Sometimes, obedience to God will lead to financial decrease. Both of these are true. There's less amens for the second one, but they're both very true. Sometimes, obedience to God will lead to financial decrease. We have examples in Scripture. Peter, he was out fishing one day, and, and he throws his nets over the boat, and, and he pulls up this huge catch of fish and there's so many fish that, that he can't get them on the boat. In fact, scripture tells us that the boat begins to sink in this Finding Nemo-esque you know, moment where the fish are pulling the, the boat down and they have to call the other boat over to, to, to bring the, the, the load in and they get the load in and they take it to shore and they're there and they're, they're going through this just life-changing catch of fish and then Jesus comes up to Peter. He looks at the situation and he says, Peter, I want you to leave all of this stuff and come and follow me. 
And so Peter has to make a decision. He's looking at, you know, his name is on the side of the boat. This is his business, his family business. He owns this boat and this boat and this boat and this boat and the nets and all of this fish that could change his life. And he looks at that and obedience to God in that moment required him to walk away from all of it. And so for Peter, obedience to God led him to financial decrease. Think of Jesus in heaven. Scripture tells us the streets are lined with pure gold and just the the beauty, the majesty in heaven and all the authority that Jesus had. For Jesus to walk in obedience to God, he has to walk into financial decrease and he has to say, okay, I'm going to set all this stuff aside. I'm going to sacrifice all that stuff and I'm going to be born as a a baby and live as a man, um, work as a carpenter. And as I grow up in inter-ministry, I'm going to be homeless in this. And Jesus even tells some of the people who are saying, Jesus, I want to come follow you. I want to be a part of your team. And Jesus says, be careful what you ask for because I don't have anywhere to sleep at night. And when I lay down, I don't get a fluffy little feather pillow. I get a rock to lay my head on. Are you sure you want to come with me? Because it's not guaranteeing you any financial success. Sometimes obedience to God will lead to financial increase. And sometimes obedience to God will lead to financial decrease. Both are true. So it was strange to me to read several commentaries in this particular passage that had a hard time offering this man of God any sort of grace. If he was so godly, they say, he shouldn't have been in debt. If he was so godly, they say, he should have known better. Does he really love his family if he's going to leave them in a position to experience this amount of pain after he's gone? Um, What a jerk. I don't even know if this man was really saved. He probably wasn't even a real Christian, you know, sort of thing. And they sort of paint him in this picture. And this is what we often do. We often shine a magnifying glass so bright on one spot of weakness or assumed failure on men and women of God, and we attempt to burn them to the ground. I promise you that our pastoral staff here are all godly men and women. And we're all full of imperfections, all of us. I can promise you that our board, all godly men and women, are full of imperfections. Our teachers in this place, trustees, our department heads, our ministry team, all godly men and women, full of imperfections. And I've had people leave the church angry with me, and as they go out, they, they shine this magnifying glass on some of my imperfections, and it's hurt, it's painful, it causes pain to me and my family. But what I've realized in my life, and what we see in this scripture, is that God is not limited by our imperfections. God is not limited by our imperfections. In fact, our imperfections often give God an opportunity to show himself most glorious and most extravagant. Let's keep going. Verse 2. <clears throat> so, The woman, the widow comes to Elijah and says, my husband's dead, I have debt, the creditors are going to take my sons. Elijah asks, what can I do to help you? Tell me, what do you have in the house? Nothing at all, she replied, except a flask of olive oil. Verse three, and Elijah said, borrow as many jars as you can from your friends and neighbors, then go into your house and with your sons and shut the door behind you. Pour olive oil from your flask into the jars, setting each one aside when it is filled. So Elisha goes to her and says, okay, I, I get the situation. What do you have? And this woman says, nothing. I have nothing except this one flask that is about half full of oil. So the man of God says, what do you have? She says, nothing 
Nothing. I have nothing. And then he says to her, well, go get all these jars and then, and then take that flask and pour it in those jars until they're all full. And I, and I want you to hear something this morning. Nothing is nothing to God. Let me, let me explain this a little bit because this can be confusing. Nothing is nothing to God. When, when somebody says to you, what do you have to offer God? And you say nothing. Well, nothing is nothing to God because God can use your nothing to do great things. When you look at your life and you do the self-analysis and the self-diagnosis and you say, I have nothing, that is all God needs to use you for great things. Nothing is nothing to God. Elijah says, what do you have? And she says, nothing. God says, I can use nothing because nothing is nothing to God. Some of you are here this morning and you would say the same thing. You would say, I have, I have nothing. I am nothing. I have nothing to offer society, my work, my friends, nothing to offer my family. I have nothing to offer to God. The problem is you're wrongly assuming that God requires you to bring something special to the table or unique to the table. God is able to do more with that part of you that you would label as nothing than you could do with something special. God is able to do more with your nothing than you could do with something. When you give your nothing to God, he can fill it with more than you ever thought possible. So Elijah says, you have nothing, that's fine. Your nothing is nothing to God. Bring your nothing. In fact, this is what I want you to do. I want you to go get as many jars as you can possibly find. Because God is going to do a work in your home. And he's going to multiply that nothing so many times that you're going to be able to fill every single jar with that little amount that you have called nothing. Because there's a whole lot more nothing in you than you think. And God wants to use it for his glory. Verse 5. So she did as she was told. Her sons kept bringing jars to her, and she filled one after another. Soon every container was full to the brim. Bring me another jar, she said to one of her sons. There aren't any more, he told her. And then the olive oil stopped flowing. <clears throat> so think about this. This widow knew exactly how much oil she had in this small flask. It was such a small amount that she labeled it as nothing, and she knew she didn't need a bunch of jars to pour this oil out because she only had a little bit of oil in the jar. And, it's, and, and I can kind of see this picture of this widow getting frustrated with Elisha because he wants her to take this small amount of oil and pour into another jar when she doesn't need to pour another, this oil into another jar because it was contained all in the flask. And it's like, I, I get in trouble all the time for dirtying a dish that's unnecessary. Anybody else? Like, like, why did you take this and put it in here? It was fine in this. Just put it in the fridge. You don't need to be dirtying another dish. Stop dirtying extra dishes and making this work for me. And so I can see this widow kind of like, Elisha, yeah, he's a single man, and he's asking me to dirty all these dishes because he's not the one cleaning them. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about. And so she knows she doesn't need to get all of these extra jars because her nothing fits in the flask. Her oil fits in the the flask, and he says, go get as many jars as you can possibly find. So she does. She goes and gets as many jars as you can possibly find. She brings them in. And there's a part of this scripture that I, I'm, I'm struggling with. Because Elisha says, shut the door and then start pouring. And I, I keep wondering, why? Why? Why do you have to shut the door first before you start pouring the oil in your flask into these jars? I'm wrestling through this. I don't know why. Was it, was it so they could pray and praise Jesus together during this miracle? Did he have to shut the door so that the creditors wouldn't come by and see that there's a miracle going on and then increase their fees to, to get more out of her and to, you know, gouge her for more because they see that she came into a bunch of, like, wealth in this? Uh, um, why was it? Was it to keep the nosy neighbors away? 
you know, so that they're not kind of pestering her and, and, and you know, peeking in the house before they knock. You know, everybody has those nosy neighbors. Um, this is a story I told in the first, and it doesn't apply at all, but it's a funny story, and I want to tell it. Um, <clears throat> that we just recently moved, and so uh, there's kids in the neighborhood coming in and, you know, asking, knocking on the door and asking some of our kids to, to can you come out and play, you know, can you come play football and stuff. There was this one boy uh, several months back when it was nicer. He walked up to our house right next to We have a wooden door, and then we have some glass that's kind of difficult to see through. You know, it's kind of like that stuff on it that makes it, you know, more difficult to look through. And he, he, he doesn't see me. But he walks up to the glass and he puts his, his, his hands around the glass and he's looking through our window. And I can see his eyes do this because he's looking all over the place. He's like trying to check out the whole room there. And then I see him do this. Ding, 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 ding. And he rings the doorbell. Ding, ding, ding. And he's looking all over the place. I'm like, look at this kid. I mean, he's like scoping us out before he's like nosy little kid. Get out of here. You know what I mean? Like, We'll have those nosy little neighbors. And maybe um, Elisha told her to shut the door so that the, that nosy neighbor, you know, she's coming over and she's like looking in. She's like, what are you doing in here? What's going on? And she's like, nothing, Karen. Mind your own business. Get out of here. You know what I mean? This, why? Why do you have to shut the door? But, you know, as I think about it, I can't help but think that it has, it's something altogether different. I think that the closed door was an indicator of her level of faith. Because look at the order of this. Elisha says, go and gather the jars, close the door, then start pouring. And so that closed door was an indicator of the level of faith that she had in a good, extravagant God. Because what it did is it didn't allow her to gather any more jars. Think about this. She closed the door, then she started pouring. How good do you believe God is going to be? Then go gather the jars. How extravagant do you believe that God is going to be in blessing you? Then go gather that many jars. And after you have reached your level of faith, close the door. This wasn't the kind of miracle that you could test out first to see if it was going to work. This wasn't the kind of miracle where she calls her boys over, hey, go over to the Thomases and get two jars. We're going we're gonna to see what happens. We're going to test this out, and we're going we're gonna to pour a little bit because it might not work, and it would be kind of stupid for us to go gather a house full of jars, and if this doesn't work, we don't want to waste our time. You know, we want to work smarter rather than harder. We want to make sure that this is going to work, and so, so go over to the Thomases, get a couple of jars, and she starts pouring, and ooh, looks like it's going to work. No, go get a bunch of jars. No, that's not, that's not what the, the prophet said. The prophet said, go get as many jars as you can, then close the door, then Start pouring. You can't test drive a miracle to see how it feels. The sad thing is that that's how a lot of people treat Jesus and the miracle of salvation. Say, I'm not going to give my heart to Jesus. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him rent my heart for a couple of weeks, but I'm not going to give him my heart. You know, I'm going through a hard season, a bad time. I just got fired, so, so I'm going to hang out with Jesus for a couple of months and see if he kind of fixes things for me and makes it better. And then after that, after I get a new job, after I get back on my feet, then we'll see. We'll see how it goes. We'll see how I feel. I'm not going to make a long-term commitment to Jesus. I want to test the waters first. Some people treat Jesus like he's on a year-to-year -year contract, and if something comes up better next year, then we just got to keep our options open. That's not what's going on. This isn't what that was. This isn't, uh, uh, I've, I, I can get out of this. This isn't, uh, um, I'm going to test the waters first kind of miracle. This was, and I've done all the work. I've gathered all the jars that I can gather, 
<clears throat> there's no more empty space in my home. This is an, I can physically and visibly see in my home the level of faith that I have. And then I've shut the door, shut the door because all I have is just a mountain of empty jars everywhere. There's no empty space left in the house. She's fully committed herself to this course of action before she has seen one sign, before she has seen one miracle. If this doesn't work, she's going to end up looking pretty foolish. If it was me, I wouldn't have to be told to close the door. I would have closed the door anyway. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know if this is going to work. Go shut that door just in case anybody's watching. You know, we don't want to look stupid here. And the amount of jars is an indicator of her measure of faith. And I can almost see this in my, I don't know how this plays out in your mind. But I can almost see this in my mind. She has her flask there and the boys are gathered around. She takes the first jar and she begins to pour anxiously and slowly. Pouring that oil into the jar and it fills all the way to the top of the brim. And she knows that she has a little bit more oil. And as she's trying to make these mental calculations, she's think, thinking, well, I, I, I thought I probably had enough to fill one jar, but not two. She gets the second jar and she begins to pour. Anxious, nervous, what is God going to do? And, and that's filling up. She's thinking, oh, I'm, I'm running out, I'm running out. And she sees that jar, that second jar, fill all the way to the top. She shakes the canister. She knows she has a little bit more. And, and now I'm thinking, she's probably thinking, you know what, maybe I was off a little bit. Now I, I, I didn't feel like I had enough to pour two full jars, but, but maybe I was a little bit wrong. Now I know for a fact that I don't have enough for three. And so she, she listens and she gets the, the third jar and she begins to pour, thinking, yeah, it's probably going to run out any second. And she sees that oil come all the way to the top of the brim and, 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 and beginning to kind of like, you know, make that little bubble on top that doesn't quite spill out. And then in that moment, she knows that God is good, that God is extravagant, and that the word of God is going to be true. And so she said, give me another jar. And then she begins to pour in the fourth jar, and, and, and this excitement and this energy and the spiritual momentum is welling up inside of her and her boys, and in that home as they're celebrating, bring me another jar. And on jar 15 and 16 and 17, she's just letting it fly. She's dumping it in there, and it's filling up so much and spilling out, but she doesn't have to be careful with it anymore because an extravagant God is pouring out extravagant blessings on them, and their measure and their level of faith is evident in all of this. And so she dumps it and says, bring me another one. She dumps it, bring me another one, bring me another one bring me another one and finally she looks at her son and says bring me another one we got more oil and her son says no 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 mom we're out of jars we're out of jars and scripture says this and then and then after the last jar was full and then the olive oil stopped flowing God will fill you to the capacity that you are able to contain think about this what would have happened if she would have gathered five jars, she would have had enough oil to fill five jars. And then after the fifth jar was full, the oil would have ran out because the door was shut, right? What would have happened if she gathered 5,000 jars? I don't know how many she gathered. Let's just pretend it was 5,000. She dumped oil, oil, oil. And then after that 5,000th jar was full and then the oil ran out. The problem is, Oftentimes, God has a 5,000-jar miracle, but we only have five-jar faith. The problem is that God wants to pour out so much more on us than we're ready and willing to receive. And God's thinking, man, if only you would have gathered more jars, I would have shown you extravagant grace and blessings. But your faith only allowed you to gather five, and so I just want you to know I have enough for five, but I have enough for so much more. 
Oftentimes, God has a 5,000-jar blessing, but we only have a five-jar faith. How sad is that? You know, it's never the promises of God that fall short. It's, it, it, it is never his abundance of love that runs dry. He has more to give. He has more to show. He has more to bless. The problem is that too many times we allow our small faith to put a cap on God's more. Verse 7, when she told the man of God what had happened, he said to her, now sell, all the olive oil, now sell the olive oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on what is left over. Look at this. God does the miraculous. Um, some might accuse God in this moment of being excessive and extravagant, but he's God. He can do whatever he wants. Again, this is modest compared to the gift of Jesus Christ. And then when the widow sees the miracle, she goes back to Elisha and says, now what? And Elisha gives her instructions. He says, first go pay off your debts because the borrower is slave to the lender and I don't want you to get yourself in a situation where you aren't able to pay off your debts. So the first thing you do is go sell some oil and pay off your debts. And I think this is biblical and divine and God wants this. Some of you have debt this morning. I just want to say that um, there is a Financial Peace University class that is beginning to, that's going to start in a couple of weeks here in Hastings. Not here in North Shore, but here in Hastings. If you want some information about it, I would love to pass that on. In fact, we'll talk about that more in the next couple of weeks. And, and after, in March, actually, we're going to do a Financial Peace University class here in North Shore. And uh, it just kind of shows you ways and gives you step to get out of debt. And I tell you, I promise you that if you are able to get yourself out of debt, I believe God will bless you in ways that you aren't being currently blessed because you are no longer a slave to that lander. And you will experience and find a freedom that you never thought possible. When, when my wife and I went through this, man, it just opened up a, just a flood of freedom in our life. And so the prophet says, first, get out of debt. And he says, second, use the rest as your source of income. And as far as we can tell, this was her source of income for the rest of her life. She must have gathered a lot of jars, amen? She must have had a lot of jars. But I want you to see something. She had nothing to offer God. And God multiplies that nothing in a way that it took care of her past debt. It says, bring me your nothing and I'll deal with the past. Not only is he dealing with the past, but he's dealing with the present. And he's making a way for the future. You see, when God comes on the scene, he always brings more. He always brings more. God doesn't just deal with today. He deals with yesterday and he prepares you for tomorrow. God is better than you can imagine. God offers more than you even think to ask for. Because think about this for a second. Think about the widow, she comes to Elisha. And she says, Elisha, my husband is dead. We have this debt. And my boys are going to be taken into slavery. Help me to get out of this debt. Help me to deal with my past. But God has other things in store. Elisha says, gather some jars, pay your debts. But there's going to be more left over. And now you have something to live on in the future. See, all she was asking is, for the past to be taken care of. But God was saying, look, I'm gonna deal with your past. I'm gonna take care of your present and I'm gonna prepare you to walk into a glorious and abundant future. See, she only thought to ask to deal with the past, but God had more in store for her than what she was asking. Ephesians chapter three, verse 20. If you write in your Bible, write it, start, highlight it, do all of that stuff because this is so good. It says, now all glory to God who is able through his mighty power at work within us to accomplish infinitely more 
more than we might ask or think. She only thinks to ask to be, for the past to be dealt with, but God is able to do infinitely more than she thinks to ask for because God says, no, not just the past, but the present and the future because if you bring me your emptiness, if you bring me your nothing, I can multiply it and do great things for you because God wants you to know he has more in store. Man, that's good. He has more for you. I think that it's time that we refuse to let our small faith limit God. I want to be a person that pursues more, that believes for more. I want to be a church that experiences more of God. And here's the good news. Jesus always has more. He won't stop filling until everything you've offered him is completely full. Stand to your feet all across this place. I think it's time for us as we begin our journey here in 2018. I think it's time for us to get another jar because God's willing to fill it. God wants to fill your spirit with more. He wants to fill your heart with more. He wants to fill your mind with more, your soul with more, your marriage with more, your home with more, even your finances with more. Again, this isn't a prosperity gospel, but the truth applies across the board. If you give your wallet to God, he knows how to fill it. He does. I believe that there are some of you here that are going to enter a season of financial increase this year, but it won't come until you first start pouring out and, and first give it to God. But he's a God of more. So get another jar. Get another jar. Give God more of you and ask him to fill it. Because God's only going to fill to the capacity that you are able to receive. If you have five jar faith, he'll fill five jars. If you have a 5,000 jar faith, he'll fill 5,000 jars. So get another jar. Get another jar. We hope you enjoyed today's message. If you'd like to connect with us or if you want more information about North Shore Church, please visit mynsag.com.